This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Tyler Hambly. He is part of a new Catholic worker house that's being started in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hi, Tyler. We're so glad to have you joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Malcolm. And uh, thanks for all your work with uh, Happy Are You Poor. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been great, and I'm glad to have you here. Uh, I know that before you were involved with the project here in Minneapolis, uh, you were involved in an earlier Catholic worker project. Could you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you first got involved and interested with the uh, the Catholic worker? Sure. Well, um, I grew up as an evangelical Protestant. Um, my wife and I are from Kansas, and uh, we had moved out to North Carolina um, for graduate school. I went to divinity school there to study theology. And um, and so that was kind of um, an initial, I think, introduction into uh, the great tradition of the church and uh, the saints and theology. Um, so it was, a, it was a good foundation, but it was also a place of um, uh, making really good friends. And uh, so after graduating, I kind of stumbled into this Episcopal church um, in Durham, North Carolina. And there they prayed uh, the daily office um, out of the Book of Common Prayer, morning and evening prayer. So it's basically the uh, Vespers and Matins service of uh, the Anglican church that that, that has been retained um, from its sort of Catholic foundation. Um, and so they were they were praying every day this public prayer. And I thought, well, that's that's unusual. That's different from what I grew up with. And so kind of kept going back. And it was out of that practice of prayer um, in community that uh, this group of people had started doing these community meals after prayer. And so I was invited to one of those meals and um, it was at this house and I walked in and I thought, this is the strangest collection of people I've ever seen. There were homeless people there. There were um, current and former divinity students there. There was older folks, younger folks, people with children, um, black, white. Uh, so it, it was it was just the most unusual mix of people gathering together. And I thought, this, this is it. This is it. I got to keep coming back to this. So so my wife and I, for about a year, um, you know, kept coming back after work or before work. We would go to prayer and then join this small band of people in their meals together. And um, and after, oh, uh, probably about a year of that, uh, my wife and I decided, you know what, this is the kind of life we want to, to live, what we want to be um, more a part of. So we sold our house and um, along with a a few other people, we rented another house. And uh, after a while, it grew to the point where we had three houses with um, uh, people who were living with homeless people. And, um, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was also, um, you know, very difficult and challenging um, and learned a lot. But that was kind of my um, foray into uh, uh, community life and my introduction into uh, the Catholic worker. So at what point did uh, this, this informal project you joined, uh, like, was it always, uh, was it always inspired by the Catholic worker or did that come later? And, and did it ever formally, formally call itself a Catholic worker? Um, yeah. Now, 
this was still, well, most of us at this time were, um, we were still Episcopalians. We were still Protestants, but, um, you know, we had also, a lot of us had been, um, you know, trained, uh, theologically. And so we were, we were pretty well aware of, um, the, the, the Catholic church and of the Catholic worker in particular. One of our, uh, professors that had a big influence on us. His name is Stanley Hauerwas. And he, he, he just has a big emphasis on, um, first of all, I think the difference that Christ makes um, in the Christian life. And then when you start thinking about that difference, uh, you can't go very far before thinking about um, the body of Christ um, and whether and there we're, you know, we're talking about both the Eucharist, but also the gathered body of Christ. And then that, that leads into um, this new kind of time, this different way of living. Um, you know, we, we usually refer to that as, as eschatology, um, the end kind of breaking into the beginning. So these are really kind of abstract ideas that we had uh, studied and read about and all of that. And so I think the Catholic worker, um, you know, was a way to put some, some um, meat on the bone, so to speak. And that's kind of, we, we just sort of tried things basically. And, uh, but I think, I think the, the real important thing for us was the way that um, liturgy, the worship and prayer life of the church led into this this whole kind of form of life. Once we started doing it, you know, Dorothy and Peter and their writings became more and more, um, I think, influential for us, and they became a kind of guide of sorts. Yeah, your your emphasis on on liturgy leading into action is is very interesting to me because, you know, on on the one hand, if you don't, if you're just doing, if you're just activistic, you know, doing things. Um, you might help some people, but it's not particularly Christian. But on the other hand, too often, you know, in rejecting that kind of activism, people say, well, you know, like we pray, you know, we're, but uh, that reminds me of, you know, the epistle of James. It's like, well, if you're sitting around praying that people, you know, have blessings given to them, you really have to realize that you might be the answer to your own prayers. You know, if you're praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and you're not manifesting that will in your life at all uh there's probably something wrong maybe you don't really mean you know what you're what you're saying there right right yeah and yeah that that bit about um not meaning what you're saying i think is is important you know we we show up um to the mass and we say common prayers together all the time but what does it mean to take the words the speech you're using and um to, to let them actually be speech acts, um, something that, uh, when, for example, you know, in, in the mass, when we, when we talk about passing the peace, you know, usually uh, when that point of, of the service comes along, we just kind of, you know, maybe give each other the peace sign or something like that. Or if, if someone's nearby, at least pre-COVID, you might, uh, you might shake their hand or something like that. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's a nice, maybe even sentimental moment there. Um, but what does it mean if we really take seriously that action in liturgy? Um, what what would it mean to render that speech uh, and peace to you truthful? Um, well, 
I think that would mean that during my week, I would have to uh, maybe work a little harder than I'm used to doing for um, treating my neighbor well, um, of reconciling myself to a friend that I've had a conflict with and that sort of thing. So I think that's that that was a really uh, key thing for me and for all of us was how do we take the language and the imagery of, of the liturgy, of the Eucharist, of the prayers of the church. Um, and you can even extend that to, um, you know, the whole tradition that we have, all of the resources of the lives of the saints. How do we take those rich gifts and make them into a full way of living and being in the modern world? And that, that was quite an adventure to try to take on. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's sad that, uh, you know, there is this kind of split between church and life, you know, like church is the building where you go, and then mm-hmm. there's the rest of life, whereas like we are the church. <laughs> if right. there can't be a split between the church and our lives, if we are the church, I'd be interested in hearing a little more. So you said you had these these three houses, how did you, um, you know, how did you find the people who are in need of hospitality? How did all that work? Uh, what, what was your experience like there with that? Yeah, you know, again, the thing that was, I think that that worked well there is we actually did not have any kind of, um, we didn't have like any planning meetings in terms of, uh, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do this, we're gonna have these three houses, we're gonna do these things. Um, Of course, we did, you know, have like house meetings and things like that as, as we went along. But again, it was more, it started with just a group of friends praying together at this church. Um, one of the lines in evening prayer, we would say is, you know, um, let, let the hope of the poor not be taken away. Well, at that particular location, there was a lot of homeless people that would hang out around that area of the city and specifically that block and even right on the grounds of that church. That church had become a kind of safe haven of sorts for the homeless in that area because there was a lot of like, you know, right nearby, there was a lot of um, stores for shopping and things like that. So if somebody was just hanging around, it was called Ninth Street in Durham. If somebody was just hanging around there in front of one of the shops, they could get trespassed, you know, pretty easily. So they would often kind of um, gather over on the church grounds, which they affectionately called the hill. And uh, so the hill was this place where a bunch of us were praying and a bunch of homeless people were gathering. And so when you're saying something like, may the hope of the poor not be taken away, and then you walk out of prayer and there's somebody um, standing in front of you in need, um, you know, it, it put a direct challenge to us, uh, <laughs> again, to make um, the, our, our speech true. And so that that quickly led into invitations to meals that led to friendships that led to um well hey if if you three or four rent to this house then maybe this one or two people could you know live there with you and we you know so it it developed really kind of organically um in that way um and uh and that's kind of how we got up at one point to having three different houses and we would do like a community meal at one on like Monday and then a community meal on Friday at the other and then a meal on Sunday at the other. Yeah. And how many, how many total people were involved in, in the project? Oh, wow. Um, so I would say live people living in the houses at that point, there were, um, 
I would say between 20 and 25 living in the houses, um, there was probably, I'd say six or seven homeless people between those three houses. Um, but then of course, and this is one of the great things I think about the Catholic worker is that there's, there's all these different degrees of participation, you know, so we had a regular cadre of people that didn't live in those houses but they would gather with us for prayer. They would show up to one of the community meal nights. We had a guy that was at every single meal and he, after the meal was done, he got started on the dishes and uh, would, would help, you know, clean up and all that. And, you know, people like that who aren't necessarily, you know, living in one of the houses become really vital to your life together. Um, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more. I, I think an important thing for us was really grounding our life together in common practices rather than trying to have some sort of elaborate strategy for what we're going to do. So it almost matters more that you're doing something together rather than that you have exactly thought out all of what you're going to do together. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that we all hunger for uh, community and for intimacy and for um, friendship, especially in this day and age. A friend of mine likes to say that this that that our age isolates and isolates relentlessly. You know, we think we're more connected with our social media and our devices and things like that, but um, these things um, kind of, uh, you know develop our individualism more and um, often become more isolating and, and, um, and it sort of trick us into, into thinking we can control our self-presentation, that sort of thing. So we all hunger uh, for community. Um, but I think a temptation is to try to, um, to come at it as those separated individuals and to sort of plan or construct or fabricate something out of nothing when you haven't had a kind of prior um, connective tissue built up, you know? So again, for us, it was this, uh, you know, every day at five 30, just some of us would walk, some of us would drive. We'd show up at this little church to pray evening prayer. And it was 15 minutes. Um, but you know, the, the walk on the way there, the walk from there to the house, a lot of conversations happen. Things get worked out. And then eating a meal together, you know, somebody has this idea and then another person says, yeah, but, you know, I disagree with this. And, you know, so after a while, this this whole kind of um, alternative form of life, this little community would start to kind of grow. But it was it was out of a commitment to um, doing these common things together, praying, eating, just having a conversation with one another and with the poor. Um, simple things, but a lot grows out of that. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, that it's, it's no guarantee to keep us unified, but, you know, I think it gave us a really strong foundation. And then how did you end up uh, here in Minneapolis with this new uh, Catholic worker you're starting? Right. Well, so um, I think a couple of things, you know, again, this, this community we had in Durham, um, it was really beautiful. Uh, one of our friends would always say, you know, it was, it was so damn fun. Um, and it was, but it was also uh, a challenge. None of us had done this before. None of us had lived together before. And so of course, you know, there were conflicts and disagreements and, um, and then there was also just, you know, more mundane uh, reasons that, that 
uh, certain people had to move away or leave because of work or whatever. Um, I think one of the key things that happened for us, uh, I would say probably, you know, half of us felt this deep draw to the Catholic church in particular. We've been living this kind of Catholic worker form of life. Um, you know, for my wife and I, we, we were on birth control for about 10 years and, uh, it was only in learning to open up our lives to the the poor and the vulnerable in our midst, uh, the stranger on the street that we, we then began to think, you know, it's a little weird that we're not open to the stranger that might come by way of the womb, you know? So, um, so that, that literally kind of led uh, several of us to um, kind of change our thinking about, um, you know, what it means to be open to life and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, and now I have three children with a fourth on the way, but not, not everybody went that way. And so, um, you know, for us, we ended up leaving that community, um, in part because, uh, we felt ourselves being drawn and pulled forward into what I would say is just the fullness of, of Catholic faith. Um, it wasn't so much a rejection as just being drawn to what I think I'd been, um, being drawn toward really through my whole life um, by the grace of God. But we, we ended up moving back to Kansas where we're from. My wife's mother uh, had breast cancer and, and died um, a couple of years ago. So we were able to be back around family during that time. That was really good. It also allowed us to connect back with kind of our original communities of family um, after being gone in, in North Carolina and being, you know, displaced grad students for many years. Um, but but after a while, uh, we both thought, you know, we we want to get back to living that kind of life again. And um, it's hard to do it by yourself. Um, and so uh, a couple friends of ours who, who we had done this with in North Carolina, they they're, uh, the gentleman is from Minnesota and they had moved back to Minnesota a couple of years before. And so on a visit uh, to see them. We were, we were there one weekend as godparents for a, the baptism of one of their children. And, uh, they, they just invited us, Hey, if you're ever thinking about it, you'd be more than welcome to come up here. And we thought, uh, it's Minnesota, it's cold and there's, there's no way, but one thing led to another and we, we moved up here and, uh, we found a house right behind theirs. Uh, we took down the fence in the backyard. Um, so we share, share a backyard and all the kids are, all of our children are about the same age. So they, they all play together back there. And, um, um, yeah, so it, it's been, it's been a really beautiful thing. I could probably say more about, about what we're doing, uh, here in a little bit. And then, uh, you know, as you, okay, you know, it's this amazing, you know, kind of journey through all these different ideas and then kind of turn some of these ideas into practice. Um, I, I know in our earlier phone conversation, you mentioned that there were a bunch of authors who were really influential on, on your way of thinking about, you know, the Christian way of life and about living in community. Just tell us a little bit about those intellectual influences on this. Sure. Um, well, again, um, Stanley Hauerwas was has been a big influence on us. He is he's a Protestant theologian, but he has a lot of uh, Catholic influence. He worked for many years at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and, uh, again, I, I, I would say his, um, the big influence on us was just that, uh, you know, when, when push comes to shove, um, 
the Christian life is really about this, this gathered group of people called the church and what they do together and being the body of Christ through time and giving concrete witness um, to his life, death, and resurrection. Um, and that's going to look maybe different uh, in, in different ages. But, um, but that, that I found um, particularly adventurous, um, especially in contrast to what I grew up with, which was largely a more spiritualized kind of evangelicalism that um, really didn't touch down into the, the material and social aspects of my life. Um, so Stanley is, is kind of famous for saying the church doesn't have a politics. It is a politics. Um, lines like that, um, you know, are, are often bewildering and frustrating, but uh, I have always found them um, uh, just great to chew on and to, to be challenged by. And so especially in this day and age that's, that's highly polarized, where we are tempted to kind of drift into these ideological camps on the left and the right, I found lines like that, that the church is its own politics to be really freeing from that and to actually um, allow me to look at the gospel, to look at, uh, at the church tradition and, and to, to let it speak for itself. Um, so that, that was big. Through Stanley, um, obviously Alistair McIntyre um, and his uh, emphasis on virtues and practices and habits and um, dispositions that we um, develop in community um, to act in certain ways as opposed to others. Um, that was a big influence, I think, too. Um, and so uh, you know, I've been talking about you know, these different practices like praying and eating together. But, um, but when you, when you take those things on over time, you find yourself changing, um, little by little. And, uh, you know, the same thing with, at the mass, you know, we are there to, um, receive our Lord with our hands open. Um, you can't do that very long if, you, if you're taking it seriously and not see, um, this kind of economy of grace where, um, you know, the, the, the person on the street who has their hands open to you, um, you begin to see them through the lens of the mass. So, so yeah, Stanley and McIntyre were really influential. And then I, I'd also say um, Ivan Illich, who was a, a, a Catholic priest and a, kind of a, a social critic in the 70s and 80s. Um, he was really important for us too, in terms of sort of being critical of the over bureaucratization, I guess, of, of the modern world and, um, and, and, and also of the church, um, such that, uh, he kind of helped us, um, uh, imagine, um, you know, different ways of, of coming together, um, and cultivating, um, you know, more organic, uh, practices in life together, that sort of thing. So Stanley, McIntyre, Illich, they all kind of fit together for us and they, they became kind of our masters of sorts. When you're talking about, you know, living a practice together, um, in, in McIntyre's thought, why is, why are practices so central and especially a kind of communal practice? What, what, what is the place of that in his thinking? Yeah. So, you know, McIntyre's, an interesting one. Um, he, he can sometimes be seen, um, you know, as a, or, or he can be kind of co-opted, um, you know, for, 
conservative purposes, because of course he, he's talking about tradition a lot, and he's talking about um, you know uh, uh, people through time who um, you know develop upon their collective thought and practice and that sort of thing. But you know, McIntyre um, started off intellectually as a Marxist, and so and and the and, and the thing about that was that he. I, I think what he liked about Marx, he liked sort of the critical aspects of Marxism um, in terms of its critiques of, of capitalism and the modern industrial world and all that. Um, but he was, he also became very critical of Stalinism, which was this highly bureaucratic, you know, highly uh, organized and, and eventually became this very totalitarian type of, of, state. Um, and so he thought that was going exactly against what Marx had in mind, which was to try to free people up um, who were enslaved to, to the, um, the horrors of the Industrial Revolution and that sort of thing. He wanted people to kind of have, you know, gain a sense of agency back. Um, so McIntyre uh, is, is in that strain of Marxism. Um, and he, so he, he's trying to look for an answer. How do we, how do we take that initial, um, idea, uh, of trying to give people back to themselves from Marx, but not let it go down the way of this totalitarian kind of Stalinism of the 20th century. Uh, and he finds a really, um, interesting, uh, uh, conversation partner in, first Aristotle, but then St. Thomas Aquinas. And, you know, Aquinas takes uh, Aristotle's um, uh, uh, ethics and um, the, the forming of virtue and character and, uh, and, and how important that is for developing these kinds of dispositions to act in certain ways as opposed to others. So McIntyre finds that to be a really... Um, important uh, move, I think, to, to give people back to themselves, to give them a sense of agency. So he, he, he shifts away from a kind of rule-oriented society to one that is able to cultivate practices that can produce the kinds of people that act in, in, in very different ways. I know recently in, in conversation, we've been trying to frame this through the lens of making a decision. And um, it, because of a book by uh, Stanley Harwas that you've uh, um, recommended, uh, an interesting point is that he's explaining, it was when he explains that if your ethical frame is about applying a certain abstract rule to every situation that comes up, you're probably already in trouble. Like you shouldn't have to be deciding all the time to be faithful to your wife or to be faithful to your religion or to be faithful to any of the other commitments in your life. It should be so fundamentally part of who you and who your community is that the decisions are not so much, you're not so much making decisions is that the, your form is such a way that you will almost automatically act in a certain way. And that's very much in the Thomistic idea that the virtue is a habit. It's a, it's a certain way of life. It's not, um, like just an, just an ethical rule that you understand and can apply. It's, it's actually part of who you become. Yeah, that that's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. As Stanley likes to say, you know, when, when you have a, 
a decision to make that can be an indication that all has been lost. Now he, he that that may be a bit exaggerated, you know, but um, it, but again, it's food for thought. Um, you know, if uh, I, I certainly am one who finds um, the the kinds of decisions of modern life to be very paralyzing. Um, you know, when you walk into a grocery store and you've got thirty different kinds of Cheerios to choose from, for example. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it, it's this sort of, um, paralyzation of choice in front of you. And we're constantly dealing with these choices that are thrown at us and, uh, and, and we're, we're being asked to make them. And it, it, it can kind of give us this false sense of maybe control or something like that. But, um, I, I think it can be actually very paralyzing to us, um, not only that, but but other questions like oh, where where should I live? Um, you know, uh, what kind of house should I buy? You know, that, that these are these are the kinds of things that modern life has kind of put in our lap, and um, and I don't find them to be actually very freeing. And so, uh, yeah, McIntyre and Stanley's point is that a life of of practices that lead to good habits that lead to virtues and, and these dispositions of character um, give you a kind of uh, consistency of self, I think, as you as you navigate uh, the world. And so, yeah, you may find yourself in, in um, you know, odd situations and things like that, uh, but you know what to do. Just a real quick example about this. For right after graduating from Divinity School, I was a, a youth minister. And I, I kind of didn't know what to do in terms of, you know, how do I go about, um, you know, trying to, to teach these kids the Christian faith? Is it this, is it this kind of content I need to download into them? Is it this sort of a mode of forming them into something, you know? So um, what I found helpful, and this was still several years before I became a Catholic um, and, and was still kind of more in my evangelical days, I came across that book called, I think it's just called Common Prayer by Shane Claiborne. Um, and, uh, and I might have another author to do, but, um, but so I, I picked that up and I thought, well, you know, here's, you know, here's something we can try. We can try doing these prayers, you know, together as a youth group. So we, we started doing that, um, praying this little 10 minute prayer, and then we would make a dinner together. And that was, that was our youth group, this prayer dinner. And then we would you know, talk and go play basketball or something. Well, after about a year of that, we had this, um, this big retreat where we went camping, uh, out in hundred degree weather in, in the North Carolina summer. And we were doing these like service projects during the day, each day. And it was, it was sweltering heat and it was kind of demanding. And when I look back at it now, I, I think, you know, what, what were, what was I and our pastor thinking? <laughs> um, but uh, I remember very distinctly one morning we, I, I don't, I, I guess I hadn't set my alarm or something, but I'm in my tent and I get up and it's about seven fifteen, And um, I think, Oh shoot, I've, I've woken up too late. I get out of my tent and I look up and all 15 or so of our, of our teenagers had already gotten up. They had already started making breakfast together. Uh, there's no adults around. We, the others were still sleeping in their tents, I guess as well. Um, and they had, uh, 
they had set out the uh, the prayer liturgy at each spot at this table. They made set the table together, and I looked at it, and I, I, I it right then I thought, oh my gosh, like that this works, you know, like they they know what to do. We're in a completely different environment, you know, it's uncomfortable, all that stuff, but we'd been doing this for so long that it was like they couldn't imagine doing anything different. And that, that really drove home for me, you know, the power of that kind of um, uh, uh, thinking about uh, the practices of the church and life together, that this can really shape us um, in such a way that we, we have something in our bones that tells us what we are to do, um, re- you know, regardless of the situation. Um, so it, it's, it's not so much a focus on you know, ethical rules or, um, or that sort of thing. It's a focus on forming one's character. And that I find um, really, really important about these kinds of communities. Um, You know, fast forwarding and talking about the Catholic worker, what they really are is schools of virtue. That's a very good, uh, you know, illustration there of of the way that, yeah, a, a certain type of habit. And of course, like, it could be a very habits could be you know very simple kinds of things like getting up at the same time every morning it becomes easier every time but of course they can also be sort of habits of thought or being which of course are produce more complex results but you know, like i was thinking as you were talking about walking into a shop um and all the choices i was thinking about um protecting the environment since we're currently in the middle of producing a, a series of episodes on laudato si mm-hmm. and um one of the ways you can supposedly, you know, help to protect the environment is by making better shopping choices, right? I mean, you know, you can try and produce ethically produced goods and, and like, or to take a different example, you know, in our family, we're tr- we try not to buy anything from a com- from a country that doesn't have good labor protections. So, because otherwise we figure, you know, we're just modern slave owners, you know, I mean, how on earth could we, could we justify it? But those, of course, are decisions, and they're decisions that have to be made. You know, like you, you look at the thing, it's like, and do you know enough? Like with decision making, it always comes down to having enough information, and you never do. You know, like, hmm. is this is this fair trade, this or that, actually fair, or is it just a scam? Is this actually sustainable, or is this greenwashing? You know, there's never enough information to make fully articulate decisions in many of these things, especially in the modern world where things are just so complex. I mean, you you have to. Hmm you're making decisions all day long, always on the basis of, of less than ideal information. And yet, so then thinking about then protecting creation, the deeper way is, as Pope Francis would say, an ecological spirituality and awareness of the, the world around us and of God's presence in that world that would hopefully generate a way of life where those decisions become suddenly much less, um, much less relevant because they're not having to be made all the time. And of course, this takes a community like I, as myself, the best I can do is make decisions and and hopefully try and make them better. But as an individual, I cannot create a way of life that has an ecological awareness. Um, it's just not possible. But as a community, a community could, especially as, as the generations went by, could become such that they respected the natural. And we see this in many traditional cultures because, of course, the cultures that didn't respect their environment died. I mean, there was no... Here, we can disrespect the environment and get away with it for a time. But over the long sifting process, a culture that does not respect its local environment 
will wind up in trouble. And as a matter of fact, it, it's sometimes thought that some of these traditions that you find in some traditional cultures, as far as respecting the environment, came through bitter experience of some kind of devastation that they're able to produce on the world. And, and, a, and a realization, even if they wouldn't put it in the terms of modern ecological science, of, of what, what should be done. But it becomes often you know, worked right into their religious and, and philosophic beliefs comes this respect for the resources they depend on. So just thinking about this, this difference between the, the trying to live ethically in the modern world through all these decisions, which is a painstaking process, and you often feel like, you know, I don't have time to live ethically. The, the amount of research, research required alone precludes me from living an ethical life if it comes down to those kind of decisions. Totally. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's so difficult because we, we kind of find ourselves like in this situation, I think in the modern world where we're kind of having to pick up the broken pieces, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I, this, I always like the, um, you know, the old, uh, sci-fi movie, the matrix, um, because it's sort of this parable, I guess you could say of, okay, what do you do now once the world has gone in this completely disembodied, fragmented, um, disconnected direction from creation? And, uh, you, you know, so it, it, it's, it's what, what happens when um, the Gnostic myth has, has taken full root? Um, what do you do? Um, and so, you know, it's this story of, of a group of people who slowly have to find a way, first of all, out of that, and then to try to struggle to make um, a way of life together uh, in the midst of, a, of the devastation. Um, and I think it's, it's just a great parable for where we are in our late modern world, um, where in spite of like the glitz and glam of, uh, you know, I live in Minneapolis, and so there's, you know, these some very beautiful buildings, um, but also some really ugly ones. Um, you know, in spite of the glitz and glam, say, of, of uh, you know, the modern city and, and our modern ways of life, um, you know, it seems to me to be a very kind of devastated world, uh, particularly when we're, when we're thinking about, um, you know, the land around us. Um, so, you know, I don't know that I have you know, I've come to any great answers about that. But again, you know, the Catholic worker and, and you know, Morin's, you know, cult culture, agriculture uh, program, I found really important um, that the kind of um, trying to connect with local farmers, you know, we, there's a, a gentleman that lives near us who, uh, he, he's Catholic and he started this thing called Fructus where he basically just uh, has connected with local farmers and um, he drives their farm. He makes pickups and connects them with Catholics in the city. That's a small thing, but a big thing, I think, for trying to, um, you know, work back against some of these things. But back to your point about like, you know, all of these decisions and, um you know, where, where do we even begin? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just know that, um, you know, trying to work through them with others is really important. Yeah, it's a hard one. And, and you know, to the bigger theoretic question, you had mentioned that um, Alistair McIntyre can be easily co-opted to serve a sort of um, reactionary frame of, frame of mind. Um, 
And uh, I mean, you, you know, you see this co-option happening with the co-option of the Benedict option idea, which mm-hmm. at least in one sense is supposed to be about getting away from the culture war, but instead has just become an integral part of the culture wars we just talked about in our in my um, interview with uh, Professor Cameron Thompson. This is, I remember uh, several years ago when I first read Alistair McIntyre's book After Virtue, because a friend of mine had insisted that this was like, you know, the best book ever. Um, so I read it. And of course, it's certainly very difficult reading. It's, it's a very scholarly story, but you know, I, I got through it, but I remember at the time being violently in disagreement with it because, um, because of the fact that just about the same time I was coming to grips with um, my very um, unsatisfactory experience with traditionalism. And of course, like what, you know, in a sense, you could boil down what um, Alistair McIntyre and Stanley Harwas are saying about practices being that there's something to the idea that, you know, some some yokel in a village somewhere just says, that's the way we do it. You know, um, they, they won't necessarily have a great scheme or something for why, but they, there's some, there actually is some value contrary to what most moderns would think in saying that's just the way we do things. And, um, you know, I, I'm wondering, want to get your thoughts on the fact that, of course, while there is, you know, that value in it, that now that I'm, you know, rereading Alistair McIntyre with a little more care and attention and after dialoguing with some more friends who have read him, I, I can see the value of that. But how to avoid just kind of that reactionary idea? Because in one sense, too, the Christian is always kind of the the agitator, the one who shakes things up, who who disagrees with his society's traditions in a sense i mean like you see that right away with christ it's like he shows up the pharisees are like this is the way we do things you know and he's like well actually i i don't <laughs> and you know then when they went out into the wider world rome was like well you can worship any gods you like but this is the way we do things we all worship the empire that's what makes us romans it's our practice and they're like, well actually that's not the way we do things and, and more fuss and, and you see this all through history that even in christian you know christian societies are built and people like Teresa of Avila or Ignatius Loyola show up and and the Inquisition in, in their case is like, this is the way we do things. And they're like, well, actually uh, not, you know, how to combine that idea of the, the value of not making decisions, of having practices, of traditions, of the community way of life with the fact that the gospel is necessarily disruptive. That 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 is a great, um, I think, question, Malcolm. I think... Uh, one, one of the one of the key little phrases that McIntyre will just sort of throw out there sometimes, but I think it's a really important one, is he will say something like, you know, um, he'll he'll kind of go through an argument and he'll say he'll end it with just saying, and this is like you know the uh, the best um, this is the best answer so far, um, and and what he I think is getting at right there is um, like with a tradition right? The, the point isn't that it's this static thing. It's supposed to be dynamic. Um, it's supposed to be always in development. Um, and here we can, you know, think a little bit of St. John Henry Newman um, and how he thought about, in fact, he was led to the Catholic Church by reflecting on the development of doctrine through history. Um, but McIntyre is very clear. You know, he'll talk about how, you know, a tradition can either be in decline um, it can be stagnating. It can kind of, um, you know, circle in on itself and no longer um, be something that's developing through time. Or it can be something that is um, 
progressing in this um, positive sense. Um, you know, so uh, and when he's talking about a, a healthy tradition, you know, it's one that has a kind of self-understanding of, well, this is the best answer we have so far. But we might run into another community, another group of people, another tradition and be challenged um, by what they're talking about uh, or what they're doing. And so then we kind of have to um, look at the, the internal coherence of what we're doing again and always sort of refreshing the community's life in that way is, is really crucial. Now, what that looks like in practice, um, you know, uh, I think that would be worth some reflection. Um, I'm trying to think of maybe, you know, a concrete example of what, of what a good, you know, a good development would be. But, um, but yeah, I think it's important with McIntyre, and you mentioned the Benedict option. I, I, I kind I agree with you that I, I, there's a lot in that that I find really good and on point. But I, I think the the whole framing of it is a little problematic. It tends to come off to me like a, a continued strategy for eventually still trying to win the culture wars. Um, you know, if we just retreat a little bit right now. Um, and kind of uh, circle the wagons and band together and hunker down. We'll wait this time out, and then we'll be able to kind of venture out again and 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 take it all over. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I just I I don't find that first of all very interesting. I think that that is not very adventurous. I think it tends to be it tends to play on our our fears um, quite a lot. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, I, I recently heard a sermon while I was traveling um, that, uh, you know, was talking about, you know, um, our current world and just how, I guess, you know, it, it just had these assumptions about how messed up it was and, uh, you know, that um, our, our world is going in more and more of this communist direction or something like that. Um, now, of course, there are worrisome trends, right, um, about... Uh, you know, the society around us and the politics around us and all that. Um, but, but, but this sermon was definitely playing on the fears of the people in the pews. And then it was, it was interesting because then it, it turned into a pitch of why everybody there needed to join a small group, you know, so that we can kind of band together and, and, and wade this thing out. Um, but I don't know that that's very good news, actually. And I don't think that that produces for going back to thinking in terms of virtue and character, I don't think that produces the kinds of practices that's going to produce the kind of person who really is going to um, be in the world, but not of it to love and embrace their neighbor, but also give witness to a radically different good news. So I think that's a challenge for communities is not just to be these insular um, gatherings of like-minded people, but to actually um, make sure that, that the practices that they're taking up are ones that um, get us to rub shoulders with people who are very, very different from us. Um, again, the Catholic worker, I think, is really great with this in many ways because, um, you know, you have to rub shoulders with people of a very different socioeconomic uh, class, and that can be extraordinarily eye-opening. I know it was for myself. Um, that broke down a, a myriad of prejudices and um, um, 
things that I had that uh, I thought about about the poor, for example, and I came to receive as gift um, uh, many things from my friends on the street that um, you know I, I never would have thought possible. Um, and I learned things about myself um, that would not have been I wouldn't have been able to learn without them. So, you know, I read uh, a very interesting article. It was talking about culture, and they were drawing on on some work from uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and um, in which he's defining culture as uh, the embodiment of a group's reflecting on reality together and on the truth that they've discovered in reality, and then the the culture, the tradition, um, is how that plays out in their daily lives. And and so um, this author drawing on that was then saying that any culture that has become closed in on itself and refuses to to explore other cultures uh, and and even if they're challenging has thereby ceased to become a culture be, at all because the whole the whole point of a culture is that it's it's the community's reflection on what it experiences and if it's not willing to give an honest experience to outsiders of whatever sort. Um, thereby, to that extent, it becomes less of a culture. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting way of framing that particular problem. Um, and, and then, you know, like as, uh, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, like join a small group because the other guys are coming to get us, you know. Um, <laughs> what's interesting is that is that like the early church, which, you know, is closest in time to Christ, obviously it's developed since then, since we, the church has been open to the experience of the ages. But Still, in a sense, because it's the the, the wellspring there, you know, like it, it's the immediate what what the followers of Christ immediately went and did. And Christ was certainly not saying like the bad guys are coming to get you, so follow me. Because as a matter of fact, following him simply made the bad guys more likely to get you. I mean, like you can't imagine <laughs> right. a worse strategy for for you know protecting yourself against the bad guys, really. Um, exactly. But but yet the center was not fear of the bad guys, but it was love of Christ, and then actually love of those outsiders who weren't the bad guys; they were the the people that you were supposed to go out to. So, yeah, like banding together because of fear of the outside world is is almost certain to produce uh, practices that do not embody the gospel. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, we have to we have to remember the lives of the martyrs. You know, I mean, I think that is often forgotten when we're trying to think about Catholic culture, how to build Catholic culture. Um, You know, we only get here at all because um, there were people who were unafraid of um, the world around them in such a way that they could both um, speak truthfully about their convictions and their love of God to present that in a way that was good news and world embracing, actually, um, but we're unafraid of uh, the, you know, in their case, the negative attention that brought. Um, as Christians, we're baptized into His life, death, and resurrection. Um, you know, we shouldn't be flippant about death, um, but we have to remember death has been defeated for us. Um, and so that that can reframe, you know, how we approach the world around us. Um, I think any version of Christianity that's stepping out, or maybe it isn't stepping out at all, um, any any version of Christianity that is kind of grounded in a fear of um, 
one's neighbor or those around you uh, is just, that's just not a very courageous Christianity. Um, and so, uh, and, and it's just not very compelling. So I think, you know, the martyrs changed the world because people saw these folks who, well, something's different about them. Um, something is clearly different about them. They love their enemies in a way that um, has never been seen. So that, that I think, is a, um, you know, a, a more uh, faithful example for us, um, you know, to, to live a life that uh, is consistent, at least, with the logic of the lives of the martyrs. Um, does that mean we're, we're, you know, going to be um, executed tomorrow or anything like that, or that we need to go seeking that? Absolutely not. But um, I think it can give us some, some courage to live differently, to live strangely, uh, but in a way that's strangely attractive uh, to those around us. Yeah, you know, it has been striking me recently that a lot of the kind of the kind of hate and bluster that can dominate culture warrior Catholicism or Christianity for that matter is is actually pro- is is based on fear. You know, like they talk about how they want a courageous church, and and by the way, it, like they, they have a nice foil and kind of like the mainstream suburban parish that is the opposite of being courageous or interesting or anything else. Sure. But but their their bluster is unfortunately all too often motivated, I think, by the fear that their comfortable suburban lives are going to be taken away from them. They, that they feel that they should somehow be able to follow Christ and live respectable and wealthy lives in the American world. And that was never on offer. <laughs> it's never mm-hmm. been on offer and, and, and to expect, but again, like hard to blame them because, you know, because the kind of the tame suburban Catholicism that they're reacting against uh, never told them that, you know, there's kind of two visions out there. The one vision that, um, you know, as Catholics, we can compromise all our values and therefore get along. And the other side that thinks that, you know, we should, shouldn't have to compromise any values and should still get along, you know, like, but, but it comes down to the same thing. This, the same thing is that same suburban kind of lifestyle that, that will not, um, that, that is not radical. It's not really living out the gospel in, in concrete terms. Yeah. You know, um, so we, we've joined with some, some other, um, Catholic worker, like-minded folks, um, to start uh, this paper called The Catholic Radical. There's this quote by um, Father John Hugo, who's quoting Dom Elred Graham, who, who wrote, in, in religion, conservative or progressive are irrelevant categories. The categories that really apply are radical or superficial. Um, and radical being, um, you know, from its, its root word of being rooted in the truth. I think that's, you know, that just, you know, kind of compare, comparing the sort of suburban church, um, you know, to a lot of this, I think, yeah, the, the big problem, you know, obviously the left, right, progressive conservative stuff is sort of what takes the news by storm, but really what's going on upon deeper examination, I think is this difference between um, a radically lived out Catholic faith and a more superficial one. And by superficial, I just mean one that kind of, you know, gets taken along uh, with the with the tide of consumerism, of uh, just needing to kind of um, have a, a safe and secure 
uh, form of life that's given to us through insurance policies and um, 401ks and all that stuff. You know, I get the I get the draw of it in many ways um, because it, it you know it seems like you know it's just a prudent thing to do you know um, to take care of oneself in these ways. But I think those kinds of um, secular practices, if I want to put it that way, uh, are really corrosive to um, uh, Christian character, and they end up leading us unwittingly into these very kind of superficial lives and lives that end up just culminating in how can I distract myself with one thing to the next, you know? Um, and that's not an adventure. That's just not, that's not um, a fun way to live. Um, and I think a lot of people, in spite of what they think they have materially and all that, um, live very unhappy lives. Um, and so, you know, again, for me, uh, in, in being Catholic and, and, and discovering these rich resources of the church, of the saints, of the Catholic worker, of Catholic social teaching, you know, it, it leads to um, at least the potential of living a, a life that is full, adventurous, and happy. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, what is, you know, life currently like at your new, the, what you're calling Peter Marin House, and, and what do you hope to do with it uh, in the future as this develops? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, again, we, we moved up here to Minneapolis, um, and we have this house uh, right behind our friends, um, and so we have this kind of shared uh, property, so to speak, um, that stretches across the block. We built a chapel in our garage, and that's where we pray um, evening prayer together every single night at five thirty. Um, we've had we have uh, two community meals per week, and have had regular guests that show up to those. We've had a few local priests that come pretty regularly to those meals. Um, so we're just kind of in the early stages of growing. I would say before jumping to you know the term community, we're in the early stages of building these friendships and practices that I think can, can lead to a community that has a vibrant life together. Um, we recently just purchased a, a third house. Um, and so uh, our two families will live in two of those houses. And then the, the house kind of in the middle of the two um, will uh, be um, kind of a fully dedicated Catholic worker hospitality house. Um, it usually we would maybe go about this in terms of, um, you know, finding some, uh, folks that had a need and then figuring out how to address the need. But, um, in this case, you know, uh, this house came open, you know, we, our two families have done this kind of life together, um, you know, for, you know, like 10 years. So we know each other really well. We kind of know a little, we have a little bit of, um, you know, uh, uh, wisdom gained through the years, I guess, um, in terms of, of what we want to do, what we've done. Um, and uh, so we want to do hospitality together. So we got this house when it became available. And uh, the goal is to um, begin Develop, developing some friendships with uh, folks in need that, that might be able to use a place to stay. Uh, particularly, hopefully we can do some of that 
before winter hits up here in Minnesota because it's it's pretty brutal um, up this way. So that's kind of um, uh, where we are and where we're headed. Um, so we've got some high hopes for that, but you know I think we um, uh, are also uh, clear eyed about uh, you know um, the potential challenges and um, and pitfalls that could await us as well. One one uh, thing I'm interested in in hearing a little more about is how you know both in the past and and now going forward, um, what's your experience with integrating family life into the Catholic worker framework? Because I know that you know families and community can always provide a little bit of tension, but um, more particularly so the more kind of radical and extreme the community becomes. Um, and and you know in the Catholic worker history, there's definitely that tensions played out. So how is that in your experience? Yeah, you know that. So that's certainly something that I think is new for us. You know how to how to um, live kind of Catholic worker life, Catholic worker hospitality uh, life together with others, but to do so with um, children and families. How to how to do that? That's that's kind of the um, the new adventure before us right now, presently. <laughs> um, and uh, so, in part, I think at least. I think for all of us, what, what does really help is, and I, I can say this honestly, I mean, my, my um, being a father today had really everything to do with the Catholic worker. Um, and, uh, and so, again, I, I have three children with a fourth on the way. Um, and, and children, we, we often joke around about um, <laughs> how, how similar they are to um to uh, folks on the street, you know, uh, that they will constantly ask us for something. Um, they will, uh, you know, um, demand our attention in ways that might not be the most convenient. Um, you know, uh, sometimes there's a mess or two to clean up that you didn't anticipate that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but with, with both, there's also, um, these beautiful gifts that you uh, that you receive in, in relationship with with the poor and with children, um, they see the world in a very different way than I do. Um, they uh, there's often um, these moments of of charity and grace that occur um, that you just that you wouldn't expect. Um, you know, it's quite a powerful thing I think for a parent to receive say, you know, the forgiveness of a child. Um, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing to have, you know, someone on the street offer you a gift. Um, there's, there's been moments where, you know, in the past, you know, there's been someone who, instead of asking me or panhandling me for money or something, uh, actually gave me $5 or $10 or something. I always found it really crucial to accept those gifts every time, because I think if you don't, um, you you tend to see it see the relationship in terms of more of a top down um, patriarchal manner. Of course, there's a sense in which you know um, we're being patrons to others, but I think it, as much as you can um, discover the, those relationships uh, on, on a kind of equitable plane, that that's really important. So, again, back to your your question about life together. Um, in community, life together with the poor and with children, um, we're still sort of figuring that out as we go. Um, and we'll see uh, kind of what happens. But I think 
I know for, for me as a dad, um, it is just crucial to be, um, in an intimate life with, with other people who can kind of hold me accountable to, uh, being a good father. Um, you know, we always say, never trust yourself to know yourself. You've got to have other people in your life that can kind of give you back to yourself. Um, so for me, it's, it's really not optional. Um, I've got to have uh, other people around me that can help me be uh, the best uh, dad that I can be. So, so I would rather, you know, uh, stumble in, in trying to take on um, a close life with others than, than not to, uh, at least as a parent. Um, I, we also have to remember, um, I think it is uh, in the Catechism, paragraph 2208, and it talks about how families actually are um, have a responsibility to uh, to the poor, to the widow in distress, uh, to those in need. And it and it says, you know, not every family is going to be able to do that. But then, um, you know, it 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 remains uh, for other families to take up the need, and then in a subsidiary way, maybe for society. But the first, you know, the 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 first. Um, step for the church in showing hospitality um, to those in need in the world is actually the Catholic family. Um, and so that, that may seem kind of counterintuitive, again, because we typically think about trying to, you know, keep everything safe and secure, especially when we're thinking about kids, you know. But, um, but I think we have to just remember that to be a Catholic family, um, it just means to be a uh, um, a, a, a people that show hospitality. Um, and, you know, uh, I think a, a faithful Catholic family, you know, that probably has, you know, several kids around or, may, or maybe not, um, you know, but a, a Catholic family is already a Catholic worker by default. You know, there's, um, it, it is a kind of um, small community. And, uh, and, and even if there aren't a lot of bodies, um, you know, I think Catholics are people um, who by definition are opened to, uh, to the, to life that comes around them, um, whether that's coming from the womb or from the stranger on the street or, uh, just from other friends. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot in what you just said. Um, uh, one of the things that I was, uh, uh, thinking about as you were talking was, uh, you know, just this idea that like, yeah, parents need accountability too. that, uh, you know, living in community. Cause I was talking to a friend who was talking about kind of these weird subcultures that can grow up with like, you know, individual, um, families heading off to, um, you know, heading off to live on an isolated homestead in Montana or somewhere. And he's saying that for the, you know, that there can be this emphasis in, in certain, among certain Catholics on like this, the family unit, but, the problem is, is that that often leaves the, especially the father of the family, but the parents, um, as as radical individuals, not owing obedience to anyone. Whereas obedience is for everyone in different ways than the obedience of a child. But you know, like it's it's rightly understood that children need to obey their parents, but parents also need to obey someone, or they're just going to end up obeying themselves, and uh, you know, obeying a a god who isn't just going to suddenly materialize in the middle of your kitchen and tell you what to do is is not going to cut that so it was interesting talking to this friend who kind of experienced kind of this um kind of you know kind of like radical homesteading type uh escape um 
and then yeah too about about accepting gifts from the poor that you're not like you know because it can become kind of weird uh as struck in the uh, again in that episode with professor cameron thompson where he's saying you know the christian tradition is to see ourselves as the guy beat up on the side of the road that christ comes and helps not yeah. so much as a good samaritan that doesn't mean we aren't supposed to help the poor but it has implications for how we see it that if we're seeing them as uh you know like we are the superhero who comes in to rescue other people um probably you know a problem but yeah the, the it's true, you know, like what you're saying about, you know, how the, the Catholic family is supposed to be hospitable, I guess. It's it's one of the one of the things that should define who they are. Yeah, right. You know, and, and I mean, I, one of I mean, one of the primary gifts, I think, when we think about this through, um, you know, the lens of the Christian faith is that, you know, OK, so just in the example of the poor, for um, they they mediate Christ to us. Um, you know, um, Christ identifies himself, um, you know, with the poor, the downcast, with, uh, with those who are hungry and thirsty, you know, when did, when did you do it to one of the least of these? Um, when you did, you did it to me. Uh, you know, so, um, in a very important way, um, you know, the, the, the poor mediate Christ to us. Um, and so that's a very different way of approaching uh, interaction with a person like that than if you're coming at it from a more sort of secular social justice type of, of, what, of approach. Um, and that, that, that would probably, you know, uh, come off as scandalous to some, you know, um, that, that, that your first step forward uh, is not to, to try to, you know, necessarily help this person, um, uh, you know, get rehabilitated into the, to the, uh, consumption and, um, throwaway cycles of, um, our modern economic life, which I think is what a lot of programs and, um, uh, efforts, you know, are, are kind of centered on actually. Um, but rather to approach someone like that as, as, having an inherent dignity uh, and not just in the abstract, but uh, representing Christ to you in the particular. Um, you know, we would always, there was a certain gentleman in years past that when we saw him on the street, uh, we would always say, you know, behold the Lamb of God. Um, you know, to view him in that way uh, um, begged a lot from us in terms of um, how, to, how to approach him and, uh, and how to think about friendship with him. Um, you know, this isn't somebody that you can just, um, you know, go volunteer at some mission for an hour and a half and then call it good, wash your hands of it and go home. Um, this was somebody that made pretty major claims on our lives and our souls. I think also children, you know, um, maybe this is more obvious to us, uh, do the same. Um, and we're, and we're all supposed to, um, come to our father like little children. Um, so they have a lot to teach us. And uh, yeah, so, you know, these are the, these are the ways in which I think the gospel, you know, the new Testament, the Christian tradition, this is, this is sort of the language and, and the grammar and the logic that it gives us to think about uh, life together. And I think it's just to, to, to try to think through it in our, in our modern world is uh 
was a great challenge, but again, uh, quite adventurous. Um, if I had to recommend a, a fun book uh, for folks, it would be a book called Watership Down. Um, and it's, it's just about, um, you know, a group of rabbits who leave their home warren in search of a new home. And uh, there's nothing kind of constituting them as a people really, except, um, you know, kind of as they go on the fly. And so they figure out, well, this, this rabbit uh, is uh, a particularly good leader, kind of gathers them together um, really well, uh, really efficiently. And then there's another one who his gift is just to kind of be a, a seer or a prophet of sorts. Um, another one has strength. Another one is, is, is slow and, and weak, but the rest of the community has to learn to um, take care of that, that one. And so certain strengths are pulled out of the community by that, by that one rabbit's very presence. Um, anyway, the thing that kind of binds them as they go out uh, into the world to try to find a new home, and as they encounter other rabbit groups and other sorts of dangers along the way, the thing that sort of uh, allows them to survive are their stories. So they constantly tell this story of the Prince Rabbit and uh, it, it's in constantly repeating those stories that it gives them the moral imagination to continue on. Um, that's what sort of grounds them. And I think, uh, likewise, um, for for us as as uh, Christians today, um, we have a story, a beautiful one that's been um, written and commented on for thousands of years, and we have all these rich resources that allow us to sort of um, get creative about how to go on. Um, and, and just along with that book, Watership Down, there's a great essay actually by Stanley Hauerwas. Um, I think it's called um, A Story Formed Community, Lessons from Watership Down. I don't know if that's something uh, people could find uh, through uh, an internet search or something like that, but it's a fantastic essay kind of comparing um, the narrative arc of that book to uh, the, the way in which um, uh, Christian communities can use um, uh, their common story to uh, navigate the world that we're in. You know, uh, you know, speaking of you know, telling stories and and, and all that, uh, you mentioned earlier that you started a newspaper, um, which is of course a very uh, Catholic worker sort of thing to do. That's uh, how it all started back when. Uh, so could you tell us, uh, you know, more about the paper, how it relates to your other projects, what you want it to do, and also how people could get a copy if they wanted to do so? Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, you know, the Catholic worker had the, the Catholic worker newspaper. Um, we're calling ours the Catholic radical, um, not not in as a um, direct challenge or anything like that to to the Catholic worker, but just uh, in fact, Peter Morin, his original um, idea for the title of the Catholic Worker newspaper was the Catholic Radical, um, but the the point of it is to try to offer um, the average Catholic in the pew in their parish um, something um, that uh, kind of uh, goes beyond these poles of left and right in our age today. Um, our subtitle for the for the paper is called a, a Catholic newspaper for a divided age. So we're just trying to. Reframe Catholic social teaching um, as we understand it through the lens of the Catholic worker as something that's good news um, in this particular day and age when 
so many, so much of what you hear um, is this uh, very conflictual, you know, left versus right kind of world. So, um, so that's sort of how we're how we're approaching it. We we also want it to be radical in the sense that it's rooted in the uh, teachings of the church, that it's orthodox, um, and that it it sort of uh, you know speaks to the unusual form of life that uh, that Catholics can live in modernity. Um, so we've we've joined with um, a few other like minded uh, uh, Catholic workers. Um, in uh, a couple of other states, uh, one of whom I think is uh, Sean Domenchinch. Uh, I, I hope I'm saying his name right, um, but uh, he's one of our editors on it. And, and we're each just uh, distributing, distributing the paper in our local um, diocese to local parishes. Um, so, you know, we're just emailing priests directly and saying, hey, can we put this in your, in your church narthex? You know, can you make this available uh, to, to the people in the pews? And and we've, we, at least here in Minneapolis, have gotten a, a really good response to it. And we've, um, you know, there's been several people who've showed up to our community dinners at the Morin House because of it and want to know more and that sort of thing. Um, I've gotten several calls from different priests who are like, thank you. This, I've been looking for something like this, um, something that's a little bit different than uh, a lot of the other stuff that we're hearing out there. So you know, we'll see what happens and how it goes. Our plan is to kind of put it out, um, uh, you know, every three or four months and, uh, and, and see, you know, if it just can be a, a conversation starter, you know, then great. That, that, that would be, that would be great for us. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting project. I got emailed the first copy. I look forward to the continuance of that. And then as we're Winding up here, you know, like if you had some advice to give those who want to found or find or grow a Catholic community, what would you advise them? Well, I would say the very first thing is maybe to not start with the rather large idea of community, um, but but to start with, um, you know, s- concrete practices. Um, I keep, you know, kind of beating that drum a little bit, but, um, you know, find um, some folks who you already um, are near and and start, you know, praying with them. Um, You know, find some folks to have dinner with, but make it a kind of regular thing. Um, Now, a lot of that happens, you know, in our lives. There's lots of, um, you know, parish programs that try to get people, knitted together in these ways. But, um, you know, really, I think the biggest thing, you know, for me has just been, yeah, um, kind of working from the, the liturgy and the prayers of the church out and letting that language really shape how you go about, um, building friendships and community with others. Um, so that would, that would, I think be, be the big thing. And then, um, you know, there's just no guarantee really on the front end for making it all come out right. So, you know, you're going to stumble a little bit. You're going to find out things about yourself, um, you know, that, uh, that you didn't know before. And, um, you know, so I think to, to not be disheartened and to really, to really have a disposition of gentleness um, as much as possible. 
you know, to be patient with one another. Um, so how, so whatever it is in your life that can, that can, um, cultivate those dispositions in you, um, then do those things. You know, I think, you know, for most of us, the, the amount of screen time, you know, I've tried to limit as much of that as I can in my own life, but I still get lots of it, you know, um, you know, it, it just, it, it ends up working on me in bad ways. Usually I get very impatient and distracted and this sort of thing. So, you know, um, you know, trying to limit, I think the amount of, of technology in one's life and screen time and all that is, is always helpful. Um, and, and, you know, uh, these things aren't entirely bad, but to, um, just to put limits, I think that that's another, I think, key word is, um, to try to put some limits on your life that, uh, allow for relationships to flourish. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tyler. That's really great advice. And thanks so much for uh, joining me here today. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Oh, for sure. Thanks a lot, Malcolm.